0: Matthew 16, we're going to begin reading with verse 21, and we'll read through the conclusion of the chapter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, pray that You would be pleased to bless us, Lord, as we turn our attention to Your Word, as we fix our eyes upon You. We pray that You would be our teacher, You'd be our instructor, You'd be our guide, O Lord. Uh, Lead us and transform us. By way of your word, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. In many ways, it is uh, impossible to recreate uh, the shock factor that the disciples must have experienced uh, as Jesus began to show them that he would have to suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests the elders and the scribes the disciples have just made this great confession that's what we studied last time Peter with his great confession it has been revealed to them uh, by the Father that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for he's the promised one uh, these men have grown up in a culture that looked every day for a promised Messiah one who would come to take away uh, their problems one who would come to liberate their nation, one who would come to bring deliverance to their people. And the Father has just revealed to the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. And we're told that right after this revelation, Jesus began from that time to show them that he must go to Jerusalem, which already at this stage of the game is a very dangerous place for Jesus to be that he must suffer, and that he must be killed and raised on the third day. It's very difficult for us to create, recreate the shock factor that they must have experienced because we have grown up hearing uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus died on the cross, uh, that Jesus was raised on the third day. Regardless of what our faith position may have been for uh, uh, most of our lives, in our culture we have heard these things. Uh, So, it's very difficult for us to recreate this idea, to recreate the shock of this idea. Uh, But there's something else here that I think is indeed quite shocking to us, and that is uh, Jesus is clearly teaching here that the way of life actually is death. That's not natural to us, is it? That the way of life or the way to life uh, is death. what is Jesus up to here in verse 21 and following as he begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must die? What is Jesus up to? Uh, we, we know the answer. Uh, Jesus is actually pointing to the very heart of what he has come to do. He is pointing to the very heart of Christianity. And uh, I remember as a boy, I remember really contemplating, I think probably as deeply as I was capable of at that age, uh, this question uh, Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Now, my logic was really simple. My logic was like this Jesus is God, right? Okay, and God can do all things, right? Uh, therefore, why didn't God just say, All right, everyone, your sins are forgiven? Your sins are forgiven. Why couldn't He have just done that? Was the question that I had. Why go through all of the things that Jesus endured? The suffering, uh, the pilgrimage, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Uh, The answer can be found in many places in Scripture. Hebrews, is uh, the letter to the Hebrews is a great place. And that's how I typically answer this question now. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, we're told something that teaches us everything about God, uh, we're told that it is impossible for God to lie. Now, what do we learn from that? We learn that God cannot tell lies. This is impossible for Him to do. It would be so against the moral fabric of God. It's impossible for Him. He can't stand lies. We don't think much about lies. In fact, we cloak them. We call them fibs. We call them uh, distortions. We call them all kinds of things. But God can't stand that. It's impossible for him to lie. Now what does that teach us about God? It teaches us that there are things that are impossible even for God to do. That's the first step in understanding what's going on here, I think, is to understand that there are things actually that are impossible even for God to do. It's impossible for him to lie. It's also impossible for God to violate his justice. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He's a loving God. And his justice must be upheld for all that to, uh, to be the case. So even the even some sin that we might even think to be inconsequential, even the smallest or briefest infraction against God's holy law has to be met with his justice. Now, we get more information from uh, the letter to the Hebrews and, and, and determining our uh, answer to our question, why did Jesus have to die? Was we, if we go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, we learn that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And of course, the shedding of blood there, the author to the letter of Hebrews is using a lot. It, it, the, the context is the Old Testament. He's constantly resorting to the Old Testament for his context. And the idea about the blood in that context uh, draws back on Leviticus. For the the blood is the life of a creature. The blood in this context refers to the life. In other words, we could say uh, the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. So without a death, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So if we go back to our question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, it was because his intentions were to save his people. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That's the answer to that question. Now, back to our text here, I want to point something out to you in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. See the word must there? That's a very forceful word. I I want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus doesn't say, you know, fellas, it'd be a good idea for me to go to Jerusalem. This would be a most righteous thing for me to do. It'd be the proper thing for me to do. He doesn't say, you know, it would be be fitting for me to go to Jerusalem. Uh, or, 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 you know, probably something I ought to get around to doing one of these days. That's not what he says. That's not the language. That's not the force of this language here. Jesus says, I must go. I must go to Jerusalem why because I'm going to die for the sins of the people that I love and if I don't do this they can't be saved they simply cannot be saved what is Jesus teaching us here He's teaching us here what he sums up for us in John 14, namely, I am the way. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. There's no other way to the Father except through Christ. See, once we begin to understand why Jesus had to go to the cross, then we also begin to understand that he is the only way. I must do this. Why must I do this? Because unless you're cleansed, you can have no access to Almighty God. There is no access for you unless I take away your sins and purify you. There's no access for me to God. There's no access for you to God unless Jesus does this. And this is an important message today in a culture that maintains commonly that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your faith. You can be a Mormon, you can be a Jehovah's Witness, you can be really anything you can imagine, as long as you're sincere. But not as that, that's not only contrary to the teaching of Jesus. If we believe Jesus to be a, even a, moral, a great moral teacher, or a prophet, we must dismiss this because Jesus clearly taught he's the only way. But when we begin to understand the heart of what Jesus came to accomplish, we don't even need Jesus to teach us that. We know it's the only way. Because it's the only way that we can be cleansed. If we go into the presence of God without being cleansed, we're going to be like uh, Nadab and a bayou, playing around with strange fire in the, in the temple of God. What will happen to you? You'll be destroyed. We have to be cleansed in order to come into the presence of God. That's why Jesus says, I must do this. He's the way. Now, the... The, the, the outline this morning, I think, is real simple, and I think it's really memorable. Uh, it's Jesus is the way, Jesus shows the way, and are you on the way? That's the outline this morning. I, I draw your attention to that because I'm moving to the second point, uh, that Jesus shows the way. And I think before I even begin to develop this point, I must stop right now and offer you a disclaimer Because it would be very easy to misunderstand this second point. If you look at verse 24 and following, Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone would come after me, he is to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now here's where the disclaimer comes in. We need to make sure that we fully understand that we cannot enter into a state of grace simply by denying ourselves and taking up our cross. That would be salvation by works. The entire Bible is against that notion. We're saved by grace through faith, are we not? And let us remember the context here. You see there's three things that are really important. You know all three of them. Their context, their context, and their context. What's the context? Who is Jesus speaking to here? He's speaking to his disciples. Who are the disciples? They've already confessed Jesus. We know if there's if, if, if only the 12 here, we know at least 11 of them are true believers, don't we? Jesus is speaking to people who are already in a state of grace. At least 11 of them are. He's speaking to people who already are children of God. He's not teaching how we become children of God He's teaching what we should be like as children of God. And we need to understand that as we go on, or we could run ourselves into a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful mess. Jesus says, that If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We don't hear much about self denial and cross bearing today, do we? Unfortunately, we don't. We can hear a lot about Jesus being the way. And we've probably all heard a lot about Jesus being the way. And we can hear a lot about Jesus being the only way. And we've probably heard a lot about Jesus being the only way. But in terms of self-denial and cross-bearing, the church has really, uh, has shamefully become quite quiet, hasn't it? Why is that? It's because as a culture, we, we find this whole notion repugnant. Self-denial, cross-bearing, that's not not what we want to go on about. We need to go on, if we're going to go go on about self, we want to go on about self-esteem, not self-denial. We don't hardly hear anything about self-denial or cross-bearing. Now, there's a number of things that I want to draw from verse 24 and verse 25 here uh, that... uh, I want to show you that if there is no self-denial and there's no cross-bearing, there's actually no Christianity. Some we say, Rick, that's a really strong claim you're making there. I know it's a strong claim I'm making right, right there. And I make no apologies for it because it's a true claim. If there's no self-denial... And there's no cross bearing. There's no Christianity. This isn't my teaching. This is the Lord's. Look at verse 24 with me. What's he saying? He's saying if anyone would come after me. Notice the word anyone. He's not just saying that if a select few would come after me, you know, a select few who want to rise to the top and uh, maybe be like super close to me, then they they, they can come and they can deny themselves and, and they can carry their cross. You know, these select few, we might call them the elite or super Christians, if you will. It's for them to do. That's not what's being said here at all. And this is not a new verse for us in Matthew, is it? Back in chapter 10 in verse 38, we encountered these words. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And in the parallel passage in Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, so if there's no self-denial and there's no cross-bearing, according to Jesus himself, there's no Christianity. There can be a lot of noise. There can be big crowds. There can be goosebumps. There can be tears and crying. There's not going to be any Christianity. This is a call to everyone who would follow Jesus. Jesus. That's my first point about this, is it's a call to everyone, not just to a select few, as sometimes is taught. It's sometimes taught that uh, this, this is teaching for the surrendered life, for the higher life. That's nonsense. This is teaching for everyone who would follow Jesus. I would agree it's a surrendered life. I would agree that it's a hired life. But it's for everyone. And it's the difference between being what we would call a nominal Christian and a true Christian. A nominal Christian is a person who's Christian in name only. A true Christian is the real deal. And make no mistake about it, this is a distinction between life and death here, as we're going to see in a few minutes. The second thing I want to point out is that this is a conscious and active choice. Sometimes people will refer to cross-bearing and they'll say, they, they might re- be referring to their alcoholic spouse or a handicapped child or to a rebellious teenager. And they'll say, well, this is just the cross that I'm to bear. Well, that is a trial that you're to bear, but it's not a cross. Not in this context. It's a misapplication of this context. In this context, there is an active choice, a decisive choice. The will is indeed involved here. Let me give you an example of what Jesus is talking about here. Let's suppose we work for a crooked boss. And the boss is asking us to do things that are unethical. He wants us to participate in his unlawfulness. Now we have a choice here, don't we? Are we going to follow the boss? If we do, we're going to be in with the boss, we're going to be in with everyone at the office, and there are some temporal benefits to be gained but we have to say no to Jesus to say yes to the boss. But if we're gonna say yes to Jesus, we've got to say no to the boss. See, either way, we've gotta make a conscious and active choice. Self-denial is saying yes to Jesus and no to the boss. And cross bearing is bearing the consequences of having said yes to Jesus and no to the boss. It means we could be fired, doesn't it? It means we could be skipped over when it comes time for a promotion. It means that we could become the object of scorn and ridicule and persecution in the office, doesn't it? It means all of these things. That's the cross. I, th- I think that makes it clear enough that we can, that we can get the, uh, the understanding. Uh, self-denial is saying yes to Jesus. It's saying no to self. Even though self is saying, boy, I'd like to have some of these temporal benefits, it'd be nice. No self. We're saying yes to Jesus. Yeah, but you know what could happen to you if you do? Yeah, I know, that's the cross we're going to carry. And we can apply that to our lives. The third thing I want to say about this is it's the opposite of self-seeking. And really, that's just an extension of the second point. Self-denial is the opposite of self-seeking. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of rivalry, or as the NIV puts it, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, if we're putting ourselves first, then we're looking out for number one. Uh, Irregardless of what it might mean for numbers two, three, and four, and etc. We're looking out for number one. The Apostle Paul says, no, no. No, no, no. The selfish ambition, no, no. Do nothing out of that. Nothing out of conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the other person. Uh, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is not telling us to forget about our own interests. He's just telling us to include the interests of others with our interests is what he's telling us to do. That's the opposite of self-seeking, isn't it? It's taught everywhere in the New Testament. My fourth point is that it is to be done daily. In Luke 9.23, Luke's parallel account to what we're studying here, Luke records Jesus as saying that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. You know the verse. I'm sure most of you have read that verse. This is something that we're to do daily. Self-denial, cross-bearing, to be done daily. Uh, in other words, my, my point is that this is to be a lifestyle for us. Cross-bearing, self-denial, is to be a, li- a lifestyle. And lastly, it's to be done for Jesus' sake. If you look again with me the verses 24 and 25, and we take them together. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's Jesus talking about there? Let's go back to the crooked boss. If we go along with his schemes, in the sense that Jesus is using life here, We would be saving our lives, or sometimes we'll use the word saving face. We can save face with the boss if we just kind of go along here and go along there. We can save our life, or we can save face here. But Jesus is saying, you're going to lose in the end. You're going to lose your life. If this becomes a pattern in our lives, if this becomes a habit in our lives, if this really is the way we're conducting ourselves, what we're really showing and displaying forth is we're not really, uh, we're not really in a state of grace anyway because if we're in a state of grace, there's been a profound change in our lives. Not, not saying that we should be perfect, but there should be some type of change in our lives. It's not going to allow us to go through with this stuff. Not habitually. But the point that I want to make here in verse 25 is Jesus is saying that it is for my sake. See those words? For my sake. Many people are willing to deny themselves for the sake of their children. Many people are willing to deny themselves for the sake of a husband or a wife, a spouse. Many people are willing to to sacrifice for the sake of their careers or for the sake of their possessions or their portfolio. Uh, Jesus is being very specific here that the self-denial and the cross-bearing that he has in view here is a self-denial and a cross-bearing that is for the sake of Christ. So back to the boss, the crooked boss. We're gonna say no to the crooked boss because we're saying yes to Jesus, it's for his sake. It's for the sake of the gospel that we're gonna say no to this, that we can't go through with this. And we're willing to accept whatever comes our way. Uh, Whatever the Lord permits, that's what we accept. Uh, That's self-denial, that's cross-bearing. And in this sense, Jesus is showing us the way. Again, let me go back to my disclaimer. We do not enter into a state of grace by cross-bearing and self-denial. We enter into a state of grace by faith, by the faith that is given to us by a gift of God. Our eyes are open, our ears are unstopped. We see Jesus for who He really is. We become children of God. But this is how we're to conduct ourselves once we are children of God. And in this sense, Jesus is showing us the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus shows the way. My final point is, are you on the way? Are you on the way? Uh, the, it's, it's not a way that's natural to us, is it? It wasn't natural to the disciples either. You know, in case you thought I was just going to skip that part, how does Peter respond to Jesus' words uh, You know, I got to go down to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed. Does does Peter just put his head down and say, oh Lord, that's so sad. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, after all, Peter's just been commended. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He made his great confession. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. How does Peter react to Jesus' words? It's in verse 22. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I don't know if Peter's swelling out because of the accolades he's just received, but what I do know is Peter's now giving Jesus orders. He's rebuking the Lord. I know more about this than you, Lord. I got to, I got to line in on the will of the Father and it's never going to happen to you. And Jesus rebukes him, doesn't he? Really powerfully. What's he say? Get behind me, Satan. Has anybody ever wondered why Jesus said that to Peter? Boy, I have. You want to know what I think is going on there? I think that this is recalling the Lord's temptation in the wilderness way back in chapter 4 of Matthew when Jesus is before Satan. What is Satan promising Jesus in that context? Uh, look at all the nations. They can all be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Satan is offering Jesus a crown without any suffering, isn't he? You know, you can just skip that Garden of Gethsemane, you know? Don't, don't, don't sweat those drops of blood. Don't go through all that anguish. And Oh, my goodness, skip the rest of that stuff. Who wants to go through that? Here, look at see all the nations. I'll just make you king of all of them. Just bow down and worship me. Skip all that stuff. Far be it from you to suffer these things. That's why Jesus says to Peter, hey, Satan, get behind me. You're a hindrance to me. Jesus has heard this one before. He knows the stench of this. He knows what it It smells like chapter four. This stinks. Get behind me. You're a, you're a hindrance to me. I must go to Jerusalem. You've got your mind on the things of man, Peter. You need to get your mind on the things of God. As we ask ourselves the question, uh, are we on the way? I, I think a very good diagnostic in answering that question is to ask ourselves, is our mind on the things of God? Or is our minds on the things of man? And truth be told, our minds are all over the place, aren't they? My mind's always all over the place. I'm like a drunken sailor walking along, falling off to the left, falling off to the right, falling down, getting up, falling down. I don't make very, my footprints in the sand aren't very straight. It looks like I've been drinking for three days to follow those footprints. It's because my heart's always trying to carry me away. Does anybody relate to that? Are we on the way? I think some of us are say, we, we are sometimes. Notice how Jesus is urging us. Look, look at verse 26. This is really beautiful. It's beautiful because Jesus, he's looking at us and he's urging us. He's pulling us. He's wooing us. He's saying, come on. He said, Verse 26, he says, listen, fellas, what's it going to profit you if you gain the whole world, yet you forfeit your soul? I almost made that our scripture memory verse for obvious reasons because America is forfeiting its soul for stuff, isn't it? My guess is that we complain more than any nation on this earth, and we have it better than any nation on this earth. You know, we've complained about the weather, we've complained, we complain about it. We're going to be complaining when it's hot, we complain when it's cold. Even though most of us we live in houses that are heated, not all of us do. One thing I've observed is that the worse people have it, usually the less they complain. I met a woman uh, Friday. I'm told that she is 83 years old. She heats her house with wood that she cuts herself. When I met her, I asked her if she was okay. I said, are you getting along okay? She'd come out of her house. She's all bundled up in a coat. She had a hat, one of those old-style hats on, an old coat and a scarf around her. That's how she's, that's how she's living in her home. I said, ma'am, are you, are you getting along okay? She's like, fine. I got a couple doors down, and I talked to one of the neighbors. It was the first person I was able to contact it. I thought might know who she is. And I said, to, uh, uh, the, the, the woman that lives right up, right up the road there, uh, is she getting along okay up there? Oh, yeah, all of us, we all watch out after. She's down here probably two hours a day. I'm retired, and I look forward to her coming down. She's 83 years old. She still cuts her own wood. She's a tough old bird. She never complained about anything. Are we on the way? What's all this stuff going to do for us? I'm guilty of it. I think all of us are guilty of it. But are we on the way? In conclusion, I really want to leave you all with just one thought, you know, a thought that I've been entertaining all week long. It's not a novel thought. It's a thought that D. L. Moody once entertained. It's, it's this thought. What could God do with with us as a church if we would be resolved to be on the way. Really, be resolved to put our minds on the things of God, to get our minds on the things of off the things of man. What could the Lord do with us? Look what He did with the twelve. They were a ragtag bunch, weren't they? We can relate with them. We're somewhat. Maybe I should just speak for myself. But I'm a I'm a ragtag character. I don't need to tell any of you that. Y'all you know it, don't you? But what could God do with us? I think it'd be quite amazing what He could do with us. I think it's kind of exciting, and I think it'd be exciting to find out. You want to find out what God can do with us? Let's pray that the Lord will put us on the way, keep us on the way. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning, Lord, that You're the way, You're the truth, You're the life. We cannot come to the Father but through You, but You must You said you must go to Jerusalem, and you did go to Jerusalem. You suffered. You died. You were raised on the third day. You accomplished the salvation that you set your mind to. And, O Lord, you show us the way, that if we're going to follow you, we need to adopt a lifestyle of of self-denial and cross-bearing. O Lord, we ask that you would not only keep us on the way, put us on the way, but as a church, Lord, Collectively, Lord, we would be known as the church that's on the way. Oh, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen.